It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. My goodness, it's my turn again. It just, you know, how 22 hours passes like that. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to yet another edition of Lifeline unfolding before your shell-like ears. This thing, Don't forget, by the way, if you have not yet given a gift to help the Bay Area Rescue Mission provide meals for needy families across the Bay Area. Uh, We're trying to provide some 1,000 boxes of hope filled with a traditional Thanksgiving meal that'll feed the average family of five people. Oh, about a half a dozen meals over the course of the week, and uh, that'll certainly be a huge help to families that, um, quite frankly, at the end of the month have uh, have more months left than they have money. So um, go online right now. You can do so at kfax.com. Click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage. Pretty sh- full of show for you tonight. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about the markets this evening. Overheated? That might be almost an understatement as we see what's been going on on Wall Street. The question, of course, is we're seeing inflation settle in. And um, contrary to some of the characterization by the administration, this is not just an overnight thing. It isn't temporary. It doesn't disappear with the wave of a magic wand. Were that the case, Jimmy Carter might have gotten a second term in office, right? <laughs> For those old enough to remember the hyperinflation of, uh, of those days. So what do we make of all of this? And are other positions that we can be taking to help preserve our capital and protect our retirement? Well, Marco Cordoba is going to join us. He is a precious metals expert, and we thought a little bit of a, a different take on the t- subject tonight, so stay tuned for that conversation later on. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, will drop in for an update. News, you might have heard this, that... Um, Senator Patrick Leahy, one of the most staunchest pro-abortion Democrats in the Senate, will be retiring at the end of 2022 after nearly five decades in the Senate. Term limits, hello. So we'll talk a bit about the, uh, the implications of all of that. As we meet our first guest tonight, you know, I'll take you back in a journey. Those perhaps not old enough to remember it, myself included, <laughs> but I read about it. The 1950s, in the early days of television, boxing and wrestling were the mainstays of TV in those days. I mean, after all, it was cheap and easy to produce, and viewers ate it up. But as television progressed and matured, the audience's appetite for confrontation never waned, only grew. Today, it appears, division and confrontation has seemingly become our national pastime. In constant search for a good fight, whether it be TV, in person, or via the Internet, we seem to have, in our quest for a good battle of the ideas, lost our ability to discuss, debate, and even compromise. The conversations that once led us to common ground now only lead us to deeper division. How can we recapture what unites us 
And what lessons can we be teaching our children about such matters as kindness toward one another, the importance of things like character, and how to create a better future for the next generation? Well, my first guest tonight sat down to delineate many of those ideas on paper in a series of letters written to her son, who, although today is perhaps too young to read them, will undoubtedly come to treasure these writings by mom, much as hopefully you will, inside the pages of a new book called Dear Hartley, Thoughts on Character, Kindness, and Building a Brighter World. Just newly released by Center Street Publishers, available at the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. Joining me is Hartley's mom, former co-host of ABC's The View and former co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend on Fox News. We're delighted to have joined us on the program, Jedediah Bilad. Jedediah, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was a, a great intro. I didn't know where you were going to go with that. I was like, is he going to go into the TV segments I've done that feel like boxing? Is he going to go into the letters? There's so many ways you could have gone with that one. So <laughs> thank you so much for that beautiful intro um, about a book that I'm really excited about and passionate about. And I'm fascinated by this because, as I mentioned to listeners a moment ago, um, Hartley, in fact, just a couple of days ago, celebrated his second birthday. Am I right? That's exactly right. He's two years old now. I can't even believe it. I started writing the book when he was just barely one year old. And now I look at him and I'm like, wow, you're like a fully fledged person now. He's like (laughs) talking and running around. It's amazing. Be like, careful! He'll be run, well. he'll be running the entire house shortly. So <laughs> cherish no, cherish already. the time while you're able to. But I would imagine speaking <laughs> speaking of cherishing things, I would imagine when when Harley grows up and is able to read, um, he's going to cherish this book. But I, I'm curious the the motivation behind all of this. I mean, uh, clearly laying down one's life experiences and wanting to have kind of a, a permanent record that can be enjoyed by not just your your son, but you know someday grandchildren is is extremely valuable. But where, where, did, where was the sort of the, the the birthplace of this idea to sit down and and write to Harley on such mm-hmm. matters of gravitas as character and kindness and doing the right thing? You know, I always love handwritten letters. I actually intro the book talking about um, a period in my life when I was in college, going through a really difficult time, going through some heartbreak of my own, and wrote to my best friend and what those letters did for me in terms of healing and growth and just finding my way to a better place. And I wrote this book at the start of the pandemic. Um, You know, we were very much isolated. We were in New York City and um, couldn't go outside a lot. Hartley couldn't do a lot of the stuff that I would have loved him to do. You know, mommy and me this or daddy and me that. And I was looking at him and saying, there's so many things I want to tell my little boy um, about the world that was getting increasingly crazy, to be perfectly honest. So I was like, let me... Let me start writing, and they started as handwritten letters just to him, and quickly I realized that it was something I wanted to share with the world, because it was stuff that I felt everyone could kind of relate to in some way, could find a little bit of themselves in, and they were about values that I felt were really, really important to build, you know, strong people, to build strong children, to build strong nations, so every chapter of the book is about something different. Sometimes, I, you know, one chapter is about following your gut and why it's important to do that. Another chapter is about character and what that means and what that looks like. Empathy, kindness. Um, In an increasingly polarized world, I write about the importance of speaking your mind, even in rooms full of people who disagree and what that 
respectful exchange of ideas in a free society should look like. You know, and I, I, I wanted, I wanted and I still want my kid to grow up and be the architect of his own life to kind of figure out what he wants his life to look like. So these values that go through this are freedom and free thinking and, you know, personal responsibility and owning your life and owning your choices and why it's important to say I'm sorry when you do something wrong and why it's okay to be wrong every now and then and own up to that. So it's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, people who are from the political realm will appreciate, but also people who aren't and are kind of tired of the division as a business model television that they watch all day long and need a little bit of an escape. It's something that you'll definitely smile while reading, and I think you'll really enjoy it. It's not something you're going to read at the end of the day, and it's going to put you into a nightmare before bed. It's definitely going to make you smile. So. And, and you know, I'm, I'm touched by the fact that you're focusing on some very important fundamental values that at one time we sort of took as the norm in America that now seem to be ever increasingly on the, um, shall we say, the, the endangered species list, including such things as what, what freedom means and how hard mm-hmm. our forefathers fought for it and how hard we need to fight to keep the freedom we enjoy, or, or such things as courage of our convictions, where seemingly today that, that also kind of seems to be on the chopping block along with such matters as personal responsibility or even growing up and understanding the importance of having a sense of, of character, of being a person that can be counted on. Yeah, you know, I also wrote about the American dream and opportunity. You know, I grew up very middle-class family. I grew up in Staten Island, New York, uh, in a small condo behind the Staten Island Mall. People used to joke with me, oh, you grew up behind the Staten Island dump. And it was true. That's where I grew up. My parents worked really, really hard to pay off that mortgage and gave me a sense of what it means to produce hard work and how rewarding that is. But I somehow landed on television and I always say to myself, wow, only in America. And I want him to know what opportunity means in this country and how you know capable he is of achieving the things that he wants to. I also write about chivalry and you know, why is it dead and, and what should it mean and why you shouldn't be upset if someone opens the door for you or that's just an act of kindness. You don't have to read, you know, some, you know, feminist dogma into everything that happens. It's just in an effort to analyze and overanalyze, often the simple things in life that really had value are being lost. And some of those simple things are just making someone else, you know, doing something nice for someone else without an agenda or, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot in there of I share a lot of secrets and things and moments I had on television where, you know, I wish I had done things differently or things went in a way that I I, I wish I had, you know, the ability to kind of go back and I say things like, you know, I have some regrets and these are what they are. And I felt like a little bit nervous, truthfully, in such a hyperpolarized world to put something out there like this initially because it has my little baby on the cover and you know, everyone who hates my politics is immediately going to be, you know, dashing my little boy and all that. All of those things went through my mind. But I really felt like the world was in such a need for just some sense of shared humanity and some sense of bringing back those values that are so important um, that I, I just kind of put that aside. And I said, if I'm asking my little guy to be brave, then let me be brave and let me share this and hope that it touches someone Um it's not just for parents, it's for students, it's for, you know, grandparents, it's for teachers, it's for really anyone who's concerned about what's happening in the world right now, in the country right now, and who just, you know, 
wants to feel like they're passing something on to the next generation that empowers them and self-empowers them. Yeah, we seemingly have lost that that sense of uh, heritage and passing the mantle on of, of, of such things as, as hard work and sacrifice. Many of the values that our parents and grandparents grew up with that allowed them to come to a new country and survive. And today, seemingly, much of that is being discounted, if not altogether, um, uh, you know, just tossed aside. And and I'm I'm struck when you mention about the things like opening doors. You know, I I was raised to believe that that was a way that you taught respect for others. And and in particular, open the door for someone that's older than you, open the door for a lady. And today, if you do it, um, there's a 50-50 chance you might get a, a stare that'll burn (laughs) like a laser burn right through you as if somehow to suggest that there's an ulterior motive to just wanting to be kind to one another and as i mentioned some of these things seem to be on the endangered species list this effort at chronicling and passing on that kind of Legacy, I think, is critically important. We're visiting today with Jedediah Bilani. Say, I know the name. Well, of course you do. She was a co-host on ABC's The View. I've seen her, no doubt, on Fox and Friends Weekend. Well, this is not her first uh, dalliance at writing. It, uh, it may be one of her best. It's called Dear Hartley, Thoughts on Character, Kindness, and Building a Brighter World. The book newly published by Center Street Publishers. I mean, fresh out like the ink is still wet new. And you can check it out, of course, at uh, better retailers near you or the usual suspects, including Amazon.com and uh, at Jedediah's website, JedediahBila.com as well. We'll take a brief time. I'll come back to more of our dialogue, more of the conversation as uh, our visit today with best-selling author Jedediah Bila continues here on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Jedediah Bila with us today. She's um, sharing a bit of her own heart and what she's detailed in 52 letters that comprise not only a series of um, lessons and thoughts, legacy really, to her uh, young son who just celebrated his birthday a couple of days ago, but uh, sharing all of this with the rest of us. The new book called Dear Hartley, Thoughts on Character, Kindness, and Building a Brighter World. One of the things that I'm, I'm struck by is the notion, and we talk about it on this program all the time, that some of the challenges we see today include a generation that has been raised on the notion that uh, they've been kind of instructed on what to think as opposed to how to think. How important do you think those sorts of values are, personal responsibility and the like, when it comes to raising your son? You know, that first thing you mentioned is, is dear to my heart because before I got into television, I was a school teacher. And I taught in schools for six years. I taught, you know, seventh grade through college. And I was really concerned about what I saw. I was, I was getting worried about education turning into indoctrination. And I saw that certain students who felt a certain way were applauded and students who felt a different way were kind of ostracized and looked down on and even in assembly halls would be made to feel odd for raising their hand and voting for a certain you know response to a question or whatnot it was all very political um and i don't like that (laughs) I, i don't approve of it i don't like it i don't want that for my child so I'm a passionate defender of diversity of thought and free thinking conversations and engagements with people. And I really want, you know, I've worked in, I worked at The View. I was the lone conservative there. 
um, I've worked in places where I've had a different opinion and it's been really challenging to get that opinion across because I am a free thinking person and I don't tell a line for a politician or a political party. Uh, I am a conservative, but I've been disappointed with the Republican Party plenty over the years. So I like being a free thinking person. I feel like people know that what I'm telling them is really what I feel because I'm not a reliable talking point. And yet sometimes I find myself among reliable talking points and that's a battle. But I wanted my son to know, speak up. You know, I don't want to put you through a system that is going to make you feel like you're going to be punished for holding a certain belief. And I don't care what that belief is. You know, if I raise my son to ask really good questions and he winds up disagreeing with me on something, but really defending how he feels and being able to respectfully have that conversation with me, then that's a a good job that I've done. So that particular value, um, and as it relates to schools, um, as well as how it relates to parents and parents feeling like they should have a say. You know, education is supposed to be about education. It's not supposed to be agenda-driven. So if you're a parent and you see something happening in your kid's school, that's your child. You should have a voice and you should be able to go and and ask questions and make complaints and have your voices heard as well. So it's about being a free-thinking society that really embraces these kinds of conversations and push back when people feel like something is going in a way that is not advocating for freedom or freedom of thought. And, you know, the the notion of sort of this paradigm shift we've seen in education in this country where it's less and less about preparing a student for life, giving them the fundamentals, teaching them how to think, teaching them about the importance of, you know, the things in life that are important versus the things that are trivial. Instead, we've turned many public classrooms into uh, social experiments, what with, you know, gender dysphoria issues and and whatnot, and parents are afraid to speak up. Uh, Dare they show up at a school board meeting? And, and 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 raise a concern. At the end of the day, I, I almost wonder if we're reaching a point now, and it's a few years before you'll have to consider this, but even for yourself, have you and your husband talked about the possibility of maybe looking at alternatives for Hartley's education, such as homeschooling? We have, actually, and that's something that I never thought I would consider. Um, a friend of ours, a family friend of ours has been homeschooling her children uh, for some time. And I always said, oh, I could never do that. You know, and I also, because it's a lot of work, right? It's a, it's a different level. It's a different kind of investment. And I also, because I taught in classrooms for so long, you know, there's a lot of good that I always felt comes of that, of just, you know, you know, a lot of that social dynamic for kids. But what I'm seeing is just really disheartening and increasingly agenda-driven educational program that is really not about education at all. And, and I'd also say to people, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is, the, the wide umbrella that is actually education, some of the stuff we don't think about as education is actually far more useful in life. You know, I got my master's from Columbia, and I came out and I had this fancy degree, and it occurred to me pretty quickly that I didn't know how to do anything. I, I didn't have any practical skills. I had memorized well. I had gotten all these great grades, you know, 4.0 GPA in college. That all sounds really good. But when I would look at a friend of mine who was living on a farm in Texas and you know, at the time was, you know, operating that farm and, and providing food for the family and, you know, you had to handle electrical wiring in the house if an emergency happened and just had all of this hands-on practical knowledge. Um, a child in that family was also homeschooled and part of the homeschooling involved learning all of these things. I remember thinking to myself, wow, I, 
I messed up, you know, <laughs> I messed up. And that's not to say that you can't get, you know, good things out of a master's degree. or you, but, but just remember that there's a lot out there that doesn't come from textbooks and doesn't come from a standard educational system that's really valuable. You know, we, we live in a town right now and, you know, we have a plumber come to the house. It's amazing. I mean, the things he can do, I'm fascinated by. And, you know, it, during the pandemic, I think you saw a lot of those people be so valuable. You know, a lot of the people who lived in New York City apartment buildings were used to calling the super and getting something done. Well, guess what? During the pandemic, they weren't, people weren't responding to those calls. Everyone I knew who was self-sufficient and had these practical skills, they were fine. They were just handling life. And I said, wow, if they were, you know, in one of these survival movies, I would be long gone and they would be surviving. So I think I think you also have to remember that as a parent. And it's challenging for someone like me. I grew up in Manhattan. You know, I was the call the super and fix it girl. But now that I have a child, I'm like, you know what? I want him to be able to to build something, to fix something, to know the sense of self-worth and self-reliance that comes from that. But I think a lot of the older generations understand a lot better than I do, but I want my kid to have that. So um, that's an important component of, of an unconventional kind of view of education that I think doesn't get spoken about enough. Well, I tell you, I think uh, Hartley's going to be in for um, quite an experience when he uh, reaches the stage that he can uh, begin to understand and digest all that you're sharing inside the pages of this new book. And uh, I appreciate, uh, Jedediah, not only your candor in willing willing to um, essentially share this with with the world, even though, as you point out, there may be some critics that are going to come on and pile on just because that's what they do. Uh, but I think it's really important and an important lesson that I think all of us need to be mindful of in, you know, Scripture says to train up a child in the way he or she should go and that the responsibility we have as parents and adults to pass on the good things in life to pass on what it means to be responsible to have a sense of personal responsibility uh, such matters as as character uh, girls learning to be ladies men learning to be gentlemen i mean i know you use those words today and and, and be ready for somebody to hit cut your head off but but the reality is um, our kids are missing out and our nation is heading in a very dangerous direction, absent these values that were the values, quite frankly, that helped found this nation, get her through multiple wars. And um, I sure appreciate the time today, uh, Jen and I. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I hope everyone enjoys the book. You bet. Again, there is Jedediah Vila. The new book is called Dear Hardly, Thoughts on Character, Kindness, and Building a Brighter World, newly published by Center Street. You can get it through Amazon.com or through Jedediah's website, JedediahBila.com. 5.32, we're a bit late. Let's get you updated on some traffic here. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, it's amazing. We look at the way technology and information has changed so rapidly. And we see the growing face of the demographics in our nation today, uh, certainly uh, most notably in a state like California. Somebody had a comment to me the other day, you know, for much of the early history of the United States up until uh, probably the last 50 or 60 years, and and to a great degree it continues to this day, though not as prominently, uh, America had been the biggest 
and most active sending nation in terms of sending nations or sending individuals overseas to the nations to bring about uh, the um, uh, dissemination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've learned in more recent years that uh, while that can be effective, uh, even more still, it's effective to help train nationals because not only is it um, uh, better stewardship from the economics of it all, but then too, you're not having to call upon individuals to suddenly immerse themselves in a new culture, a new language, new surroundings, which takes some time for acclimation before you can really become effective at what you're doing in terms of ministering to people on the ground in country. With all of that said, a buddy of mine the other day made the observation. He says, you know, with the changing demographics of America and the way the Internet uh, has has made this um, spinning sphere of ours called planet Earth so small, it's almost as if the world has come to us. And in many degrees, it has. And this is a, perhaps a renewed opportunity for we as the church, the body of Christ, to understand the rare and unique opportunity that we have to uh, share the good news, to share that hope uh, and, the, and the good news of the answer that we have through Christ Jesus. With that thought in mind, when we talk about um, the world and we get down to the missiology of, of a Christian worldview, what exactly is that? What do we mean by that? Well, with some in-depth look at how to become a world-class Christian, becoming a part of God's global kingdom, we're joined now by best-selling author Paul Brothrick. And uh, Paul, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks, Greg. Good to be out on the West Coast, at least by voice. Yeah, I must say, I, I guess welcome back. As I understand it, the last time that you were out here, uh, unless there's an in-between trip that I hadn't heard about, the last time you were out in our fair city, there was a whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, I think I've had a few trips in between. Yeah, okay. I was, <laughs> I was there during uh, the October 1989 shake-up. Uh, I think it was in 89, wasn't it? Or was it was in 91. 19, 1989, October 17th to be precise. I was down at the Hyatt Regency Berlin game at a conference. I was teaching at about 5.15, and the room began to shake. Of course, I thought it was the Holy Ghost coming upon us, but it <laughs> uh, turned out to be an earthquake, which was my first and only earthquake experience. I'm from the Boston area all my life, and uh, so it was quite an unusual experience, to say the least. Well, we're, we're pleased uh, to have the distinction of uh, having provided you with your first and, and hopefully only experience in, in such matters, but it, it's interesting as we start our visit tonight, uh, Paul, with a reference to uh, the, the ground shaking. We've certainly seen a lot of that, too, in the spiritual realm, haven't we? I, you know, I made, made reference in my opening remarks to how the world is getting so much smaller and how that in many respects, as we had been uh, the, the largest and most active sending nation in terms of sending missionaries overseas, how that in many respects, the world is now coming to us. Absolutely. And, you know, outside of the actual time that Jesus walked the earth, I actually can't think of a time in Christian history that's more exciting to be alive than today. Partly because all those American and European lives that got laid down as uh, martyrs for Christ, you know, a century and a, or 50 years ago, uh, their lives have brought forth fruit, and now you have uh, the whole church, as the saying goes, taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And uh, it's just a staggering thing. And as I think you quoted earlier, uh, the world has come to us. And I was reading not too long ago a statistic that said the United Nations is citing the fact that the United States is the only country on earth with someone from every other country on earth living in it. Mm. And, we, you know, when we used to have to go to some really difficult places, in many respects, many of us can reach 
the unreached peoples of the world simply by reaching out to the uh, you know our Muslim coworker or the uh, the Buddhist guy who's down the street or the Hindu who happens to be my medical doctor. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing how the world has changed. We sit here with these devices in the palm of our hand that allows us to text, email. Uh, we can look up uh, websites anywhere around the globe. I think we certainly today as as Americans have got a pretty good understanding of what it means to be globally connected. But I have to wonder, though, Paul, from a Christian perspective, um, as much as the the technology has advanced quite nicely, has the theology kept up with it? Meaning, uh, as as we understand what it means to be globally connected, do Christians really understand also what means to be uh, globally concerned? I think that that's an excellent question, um, and I think obviously the answer is going to vary according to the Christian you talk to. The, the sad reality is that technology has given us access to more knowledge than any of us can possibly handle. And as a result, uh, we can become either numb to it or we just shrug it off and say, I can't do anything. I can't make any difference at all. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this book, Being a World-Class Christian. Um, it, it's really about trying to help people see that, you know, you might not be able to change the world but you might be able to do something of global significance right in your own community, right in your own neighborhood, or at your workplace, or something like that. But I think you're right. It's Technology has made it uh, so overwhelming that you, know, you, you, you go live to the tsunami in Sri Lanka, and by the third day of seeing it, you're just numb to it, because you can't really do that much about it. And it's just another news report to you after a while. And I think that's, you know, we, most of us have forgotten to be praying for Egypt, and yet, a year ago, Egypt was every day in the news. Now, it's still going through the news, but we're not paying as much attention to it because yeah. we have kind of a short attention span. Well, and the new technology, too, you know, where uh, heretofore it might have taken months for the news to arrive from overseas and be disseminated across the spans of a country like the United States, uh, typically by word of mouth, uh, telegraphed to a degree, and, and, and the printed page now happens in the matter of seconds. And as quickly as it comes, it's also uh, just as quickly replaced by something else. Uh, you, you made reference to the idea that we might be able to make some changes, we might be able to have some influence, but I have to wonder, uh, as Christians living in this modern world, with all that's going on around us, as we speak to that notion of being globally concerned, is this something that is an option for some believers, or does it really kind of narrow down to being a mandate? Well, it depends on what Bible you're going to use. <laughs> I mean, frankly... If you look in the scriptures, you cannot escape the fact that God's vision, God's view is for the world and for his people, because for whatever mysterious reason, God has chosen to do his work in the world through people, broken people, forgiven people like you and me, and every one of us has some degree of responsibility. In other words, the mandate, since you used that word, that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven you know, to make disciples of all nations, or to preach the gospel to all creation, or to, uh, to be, you know, preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem to all the nations. I mean, all those things, they still um, remain for each Christian today. And our question is not where we are sent. I'm sorry, our question is not if we are sent into the world, the question is where. And, you know, opening our eyes to the global realities that God said in the Psalms, you know, declare my glory to the nations, my wonderful deeds to all peoples, that's still binding on us today. It's not a matter of just, you know, tucking ourselves away in our safe little bubble 
and uh, and thanking God that we have a nice prosperous life. It's about looking out into the world and saying, what difference can I make that God has unique me, uniquely equipped me for? Today, we're talking about uh, what it means to be a world-class Christian. Uh, let me be careful that we didn't say a worldly Christian. A lot of folks have got that down pat. We're talking about being a world-class Christian. And with us is best-selling author Paul Brothwick. We're going to come back after a brief timeout, uh, dive a little bit deeper in here, you know, as we talk about the way in which uh, television and satellite and the Internet and technology has uh, has brought us closer together. I wonder if it's also made us easier to be more uh, spectators as to what is going on in the world around us, as opposed to being participants. We'll dive into that question as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some People out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed- education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, we thank you very much. That that tortured answer, as much as we listen to it, also demonstrative of a huge need for a deeper education. When you begin to realize that beyond the notion that uh, fewer than three in ten graduates thinks it's important to know the locations of countries in the news, and fully 66% can't even find Iraq or Saudi Arabia on a map, that a large percentage of them even can't uh, can't even find America of course, I guess they lack maps. Call Google on that one, would you? I, I, it just is demonstrative of what seems to be a greater level of global connectivity, and yet we're we're not even participating. We're just kind of very casual spectators to it all at many levels. We're visiting today with best-selling author Paul Brothwick. His new book is called How to Be a World-Class Christian, Becoming Part of God's Global Kingdom. Uh, Paul, that, that tortured answer there from uh, a beauty pageant contestant a couple of years ago, certainly uh, troubling in terms of just the notion of the, of the level of, of, of disconnectivity at a day and an age when, quite frankly, staying connected and being educated and, and being able to participate is easier now than it ever was before. Well, I've, I've had an elder at our church ask us, uh, what is the capital of Africa? And, uh, and you know, if you don't get that that's a, uh, a joke, it's there are 53 or 55 countries in Africa, each with their own capital, you know, and yet he thinks of Africa as a country, not as a continent, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. Um, I oftentimes ask um, people who are either new to this country or international students, what's the stupidest question that an American has ever asked you. And I had a student this past semester from Malawi, southeastern Africa, and um, and I asked him what is the stupidest question, and, and they, they somebody, he was up in uh, Maine, not, not too far from us, and the church that he was hosted by asked him when he started wearing clothes. <laughs> All right? And, and he thought it was a joke. Sure. So he said, well, when I came to New York, after I got through customs, I decided to buy some clothes. And the people were horrified, and he knew they weren't kidding, meaning that they didn't know. And he, because they were thinking, you know, he had come all the way over here buck naked and bought clothes on the other side of customs in New York City. 
and yet they were, you know, and one of my uh, friends in Nigeria said he got so tired of Americans asking him how he learned English when Nigeria is an English-speaking country. And he said, uh, he said, finally, I got, I just had to tell him I was, I learned it on the plane on the flight over, <laughs> you know. But I mean, to be fair, and I, I, you know, I can be as critical as anybody about Americans' lack of geography knowledge. Uh, but to be fair, there is hardly a place on planet Earth where you can travel for 3,000 continuous miles, speak one language, go to Denny's, you know, stay at Hampton Inn, ride on highways that look all remarkably the same in terms of their signposts and everything. So, I mean, in one sense, unlike a country like Luxembourg or Switzerland, where we're surrounded by three or four other language-speaking countries, you know, Americans can be pretty lazy about it. Now, I mean... Obviously, um, the influx of Spanish speakers and Chinese speakers, Korean speakers, whatever, is changing some of that in our urban areas. But generally speaking, we don't have to learn about the other countries of the world. And many times I've traveled and people will say they know more about my country, meaning the USA, than I do. And sometimes they do because they're directly affected by the decisions that our government makes and decisions that our military makes. And I'm, you know, it's, it affects me somewhat, but not on a day-to-day basis, generally speaking. As the world is coming more to us, and, and as we certainly, as you've explained earlier, Paul, not been relieved of any obligation in terms of, you know, the, the perspective of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth, um, how can, how should Christians begin to develop uh, not just a Christian worldview, but how to become a world-class Christian? Well, I think one of the things that I advocate in the book is obviously cultivating some information, you know, learning about places, that that the Islam of Iran is not the same as the Islam of Iraq, for example. And uh, and what's going on in Egypt affects the entire Arabic-speaking world. Or, you know, learning something about what uh, one article in Time magazine calls the upcoming Chindian century, and it's talking about how the economies of China and India will probably be more significant in the next hundred years than the USA. And wrestling with those kind of questions, even if we disagree with them, to just get some information that sort of rattles our cage a little bit. Because the United States, depending on whose statistics you use, is really only about 5% of the world's population. And so if God so loved the world, John 3.16 then there's a lot to be learned about the world that God loves outside of our own country, as well as within it. One very simple thing that I propose in the book, and in the time that we had on the radio, I want to make sure to say this, because every person, when you start thinking about the world, can feel pretty overwhelmed by it. So my number one creative idea, and I think it's the only one I've ever had, is start your knowledge for the world by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. Okay, so when you take your clothes off, you change your pajamas or whatever tonight, take a look at it, see where it's made, and pray for that country. And I dare say that probably 90% of the clothes in your closet are made someplace else in the world. And you can start learning about them. You know, China's obviously going to be there. India, world's largest Hindu country. Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country. And these places are touching us that way just to get us started thinking about the fact that the world is in our midst starting with our own our own wardrobe and as we pointed out earlier and and the world is coming to us and so the ability to be educated to be sensitive particularly as we take into consideration uh, religious differences cultural viewpoints uh, can only help but to make us not only more sensitive but more effective when it comes to sharing the gospel 
Yeah, and, and I believe, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of debates about immigration and unregistered people, and illegal aliens, and all this other stuff. But in very, in one very specific Christian perspective on it is, I want people to abide by the law. That's not my point. But they're here, and maybe God brought them here so they could hear the gospel from us. As one Toronto pastor said, Toronto is probably the most international city in U.S. in in the uh, in North America. Uh, and he, he's a Toronto pastor, and he said. Uh, God commanded us to go to all the nations. We didn't go, so he's bringing all the nations to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can go down to Southern California and meet a scad of people from, uh, from Iran. They'll call themselves Persians, but they're from Iran, and many of them are adherents to Shiite Islam or to uh, Zoroastrianism, a religion from Iran. And they may have never heard the gospel till they came to come to this country. And if we don't reach out to them, they may still never hear the gospel. And it's just, you know, an amazing uh, opportunity that God's given us. Uh, one, one quick uh, lesson that I learned from one of my professors. He said, when you're walking down the street, let's say in the Bay Area, you're walking down, you know, uh, streets in San Francisco, and you see a man uh, with his wife, she has a headscarf on, or, you know, there's something about their attire that tells you the distinctively some other religion. Maybe he has he has the turban on. And he tells you he tells you he's a Sikh. He says he says pray as you pass by that person. Just breathe a prayer. Shoot up a prayer on behalf of that person. He said you might be praying for someone who's never been prayed for in Jesus' name before in their whole lives, and you're bringing that person before Jesus for the first time. And I mean, think of that as yeah, you know, what a staggering opportunity that we have when the people have come to our country because they're finding this is the place for, you know, uh, a better economic future. But why not help give them a better eternal future? We mentioned earlier that in addition to just taking the time to get educated and something simple is maybe saying, uh, you know, I'm going to see where my shirt was made. Google the name, look at the country, pray for that country tonight. Um, you you talk to a lot in the book about uh um, being able to get a, a focus on being globally aware, certainly compassion fatigue sometimes can be a challenge, as we lightly touched on earlier. But when we bring this whole thing together, how do you believe that God wants us to develop to develop this this Christian worldview? How to become uniquely a world class Christian? Well, I think that uh, it has something to do with a phrase that I picked up off a bumper sticker. I don't even think it was Christian by nature, but it said. It says, think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's a great summary of what I'm after in my own life, you know, as well as uh, in encouragement in this book, to, to realize that, A, we're part of a global Christian family. So when the church suffers in, I'll use Egypt since I referred to that earlier, uh, that my family is suffering, you know, so I, I'm thinking about that. But I'm also acting locally so that when I meet the uh, Egyptian guy at the medical clinic, uh, I, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I might be reaching out to someone that my friends in Egypt have never been able to reach. And so, you know, it's all a matter of a mindset. It's going into the day. I mean, just this morning I was uh, preparing my breakfast and remembered to pray for Columbia, South America, because when I took the sticker off of the bananas, uh, it, it was actually harvested in Colombia. It says it right there on the sticker. You know, just sort of keeping aware of the fact that there's a bigger world than just the world that I'm in. And, 
you know, many many people are struggling with the economics of the, t- the situation today. Maybe they're in a unemployment situation or underemployment. But just trying to get past ourselves a little bit to realize there's a big world out there, and uh, we have an awesome God, and we need to get plugged into thinking of ourselves as his agents in this world, whether we're in the unemployment line or we're in the gas station talking to somebody who might have just come here from another country. Get a copy of Paul's book. This will open your eyes and help you develop more of this sense of that Christian worldview. How to be a world-class Christian becoming part of God's global kingdom. And our thanks to Paul Bothwick for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. 